from selling textbooks on Amazon in 2008 to selling $25 million via dropshipping. Is that still a viable business model? Today, we're talking with Nathan, who's also going to tell us all we wanted to know about hiring freelancers and VAs. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Serious Sellers Podcast. My name is Bradley Sutton. I've got with me Nathan Hirsch today. And Nathan, we are going to talk about a lot of cool things. Uh, you're in uh, Florida right now? Yeah, I'm in Orlando. It's bright and sunny. Nice 75. A little bit better than, than when I saw you last, which was in the negative 20 wind chill of Brooklyn, right? <laughs> I couldn't even stand outside to get my Uber. That's how bad it was. Yeah, that was absolutely ridiculous. I used to live in New York and I don't think it ever had gotten that cold. It, it was just for us, me being from California now and you being from Florida. They're like, OK, we're going to we're going to give a, a warm welcome to these these sunny guys here. huh? <laughs> and I live in Florida. I have no winter clothes. So I was up there in a sweatshirt. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. All right. So I want to talk a little bit. A lot of our listeners are Amazon sellers and you kind of have pivoted a little bit away from that. But you started off as an Amazon seller, did you not? Yeah, I started back in 2008 before the gurus, the courses, the software. I got in right at the beginning. Oh, okay. And how, how was that? I mean, were you doing textbooks back then or, or, or were, were you doing private label or wholesale? What, what was it like back then? Yeah. So I started off with books and uh, textbooks. I was in college and, and I wanted to make some extra money on the side. So I took some money that I had made from my summer jobs and I bought people's books competing with my school bookstore. And I started listing the products on um, different websites, distributors, and I came across Amazon and I started to sell more and more books there. And I mean, this was 2008. No one knew what Amazon was. It was a bookstore. People didn't understand it. it no one was doing it. And I saw that they were just starting to sell some other stuff. So I kind of had this concept where I wouldn't have to warehouse anything that I could sell products that I didn't really have, that I could build a relationship with a supplier or a vendor or distributor. They would ship that product to the end consumer and I would make whatever the difference was. And I would handle the, the customer service. And it wasn't until years later that I knew it was called drop shipping, but that was the basic concept. So I was selling these books and I started to experiment with computer games, video games, DVDs, sporting equipment, stuff that a, a typical college guy um, likes and knows about. And I just failed over and over again. And it wasn't until I found the baby product industry that my business really took off. So if you can imagine me as a 20 year old single college guy selling baby products on Amazon, that was me. Wow. So was that, was that wholesale or, or did you actually make your own products for babies? No, it was drop shipping. So we were buying wholesale prices, but drop shipping. Okay. Okay. And, and like, how high did you build that business model out to? Like, what was your, what was your peak? What were you doing? We were doing over $5 million a year peak. We ended up selling over $25 million. Oh my goodness. And this is all drop shipping? All drop shipping. Wow. That's crazy. So when did that go until? So I actually ran it through the beginning of January last year. So the, the first few years, I mean, we were doubling every year. It was, it was great there. I mean, it was literally me and two other people on, on every listing. And um, we were selling pretty good brands. I mean, no one cared about that kind of stuff back then. Um, and yeah, I mean, as we kept going, I mean, we were still making money, but the business wasn't doubling every year. We weren't selling our own products. We weren't growing our own brand. And at the end of the day, we weren't very passionate about baby products. So once I started free up, which I'm sure we'll talk about it and that surpassed our Amazon sales. And I got to go on podcasts and speak at conferences. 
um, we made the decision to move the business to one of my business partners and Connor and I moved over to Freya. Now, was that business model, you know, maybe seeing a decline in viability due to, you know, like gating and, and, you know, counterfeit claims that people are doing a lot? Do, do you see a decline in the drop shipping or wholesale or online arbitrage niche on Amazon? It's funny because it's not like it was before where it was a free for all. You can make tons of money instantly, but I do have a lot of clients and I'm not even joking. There are plenty of free up clients where their business is dropshipping and they're doing quite well. And I can tell they're growing, they're hiring more people. I don't see their numbers, but they seem to be doing pretty well. Um, for us, it, so the first few years we, we doubled, we grew, we got it over to 5 million. And then it was kind of, okay, we, we dropped down to three. We get back up to 4.5 because Amazon would change something. A competitor would come up. You would get some infringement claim and you'd have to dispute it. So it, it, we could do it and we could continue to make money on it. But we felt like we weren't necessarily growing the business anymore. A lot of times um, in that business model, it just becomes going in circles with Amazon over and over and over again. Ah, okay. Okay. So did you ever like even have to have your own warehouse or anything or throughout the time that you were doing this business model, since it was drop shipping, you just did it like out of your office or house? So it was entirely, we never had a warehouse, but we did it entirely remote for the first four years or so. I actually moved down to Florida, opened up an office, took all these remote people and put them into an office. And I thought it would be great. I would, we would have a better culture. We'd be more productive. And I actually found that it led to more drama and, and I created a nine to five job for myself, which I hated. I kind of lost the freedom and flexibility of being an entrepreneur, which is why I did it to begin with. So we got rid of that and we went back to remote again and free ups entirely remote as well. So we ran the entire business remote without warehousing at all. I mean, the only time we used FBA was when we would get random returns that were still sellable. Ah, okay. You had a good, uh, what well, looks like eight, nine years selling on Amazon. What, what's a funny story that you could tell us or something really amazing that happened or really terrible that happened or something that we can learn from, or at least get, get a kick out of. Yeah. So I, I'm 20 years old. I, I'm making more money than, than I ever should. I, no one really understands Amazon. People think uh, I'm running a scam and, and I'm finally, I'm, I'm hiring people. I, I learn a little bit and I realize that I'm just super stressed. I'm doing every part of the business. I mean, with drop shipping and there was no software back then either. There's just so much going on from listing products to changing every price to every customer service email because it's not FBA. So I said, you know what? I'm going to train a manager of the day. So I hired someone and I spent, I must have spent six months training this person. And I taught him how to do emails, listings, every part of the business, every system and process. Well, on the flip side, I also had this really good vendor supplier that I, I would say 90% plus of our sales were from them. So I decided to stop focusing our, our efforts on, on any other suppliers. Let's just work with them. Let's maximize them. And it was great. When I, when I set it up, the business was running without me. We were crushing it. And I mean, the profit margin was really nice. There was just no overhead. So I, I kept this business in a great place. I'm 21 now. I'm, I'm on top of the world. And it's time to take, take a, a much needed vacation. So I take a trip out to Myrtle Beach with a bunch of my friends. And I kid you not, on the first day of that vacation, I get three phone calls. The first call was from the manager of the day telling me he could no longer work for me. He, his parents wanted him to focus on school, a quick lesson on hiring college kids. 
The second was from the supplier telling me that they no longer wanted to work with me. And then the third, just to top it off, was from my accountant telling me that someone had filed a fake tax return in my name and gotten a $40,000 tax return from the government. So in the process of a day, I went from this unbelievable high to, man, I just lost everything and I need to start all over again. Have you ever been to Myrtle Beach again since then? Or is two bad memories there? <laughs> I actually had that in one of my uh, webinar PowerPoints of why I will never go back to Myrtle Beach. <laughs> I have no plans. I would be triggered uh, by that. <laughs> that would be terrible. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I want to wrap up my story real quick. I mean, I learned a very big lesson on diversification. And when I built the business back up, I made sure I had lots of suppliers and I departmentalized my hiring and it wouldn't be the last person that quit on me or the last supplier that dropped me, but making sure you're protected is really the lesson I learned at a young age, which was good. All right. So you're now an expert about like having freelancers and remote workers, but you know, before we even get to that, that part, like what, obviously both models work, you know, there's people who have nine to five offices and, you know, big corporations. And for a lot of them, it's not viable or it's not beneficial in order to have like this remote setup, but what kind of situation or what kind of business model would be ideal where actually the remote setup would actually be advantageous over the traditional, Hey, let's rent an office or let's get a WeWork place or something like that. So can you let us know the difference a little bit? You're right. There, there is no right or wrong. I have, I have clients that are hundred percent remote. Like, like I am, I have people that have an office. I, I have people that did what I did when I had an office, which was um, have office people and also have remote teammates that, that support them. So for me, we just live in an unbelievable time. I mean, the gig economy is booming over the next 10 years. They predict that over 50% of the workforce is going to be remote. And before, if you go back 10, 20 years ago, I mean, you had to hire people in your town or the towns around you. You had to hire people full time. You, you didn't have a lot of flexibility as an entrepreneur. And now where you can start a business with 5,000, 10,000, $20,000, sometimes even less, you don't necessarily have to hire people full time. You can hire a VA for 20 hours a week or a graphic designer to do projects here and there. So for me, and the reason that I love hiring remote is the flexibility it allows. I mean, we've all heard that, oh, if you have someone in the office that, yes, they'll be more productive or you'll be able to build a culture or they're easier, easier to manage. Well, I kind of had the opposite experience running an office. So for me, I, I know that, that my team is pretty close. I know they're super productive. I know that I trust them and that they're very scalable. I have a 40 person remote team now. So for me, the pros heavily go in the remote direction because anything that you can do in the office outside of your warehouse staff or a janitor or a cashier or stuff like that in your typical brick and mortar can get done remote. And you just get access to all this different talent at different price points for, from all over the globe when you go the remote route. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So what would you say you know, I, I know there's people who have misconceptions, you know, about it or, or big time fears, you know, like whether it's English speaking ability, if, if they're trying to hire somebody with customer service or whether it's security issues or, or how do I know if they're really working? But, you know, those are just things that come off the top of my head. I'm sure you've heard it all. What would you say, let's say top three or top five fears and or misconceptions that people have when considering hiring or outsourcing to uh, remote workers? 
So number one is that big fear that Amazon is going to close your account if you have someone that logs into yours that, that logs into another. And I'm sure at some point it's happened. I have yet to see it. I mean, with my Amazon business, I hired hundreds of people um, that all worked on other people's accounts, never had an issue. Thousands of clients that hire freelancers from us and other places that, that go on multiple accounts, never seen it. So that risk, I'm sure it's there. Uh, we all hear people getting shut down for random reasons, but it's a lot smaller than you think. I think Amazon expects you at some point to hire people and, and grow your business. I think just security in your business is number two. Um, I, I speaking for people on the free up platform, which is the only people I can speak for. They care a lot more about growing their freelance business and getting a new client and, and pay and, and um, providing for their family than they do about jeopardizing or hurting your business in any way. It's just not their top priority. So that percentage is just a lot lower than people think. Number three is just the, that you can't get high level work. I, I think a lot of people are used to outsourcing with data entry projects or, Hey, follow my process here and there. I mean, I, I have a bookkeeper that I or a billing guy, I guess he, he runs my accounting team. He's not really an accountant, but I would put him against any bookkeeper out there, US or non-US, incredibly high level, does, does a great job. So those type of people are out there. You can get the, the low basic level, but you can also get the, the mid-level specialists and the top level experts hiring remote in, in lots of different countries. <laughs> and I, I don't know, I guess the last one is just that whole time zone factor. I mean, time zone is only a factor if you, if you allow it to be, if you need someone that can only work Eastern time, hire someone that, that's good working Eastern time. I have lots of uh, assistants that are in the Philippines that work the night shift and they're totally happy with it and it causes no issues. Okay. Speaking of issues, what about the language barrier? I know a lot of people do go, you mentioned the Philippines because you know, since English is kind of, you know, a second language over there, we have a lot of English speaking people, but for written English, do you see issues with outsourcing to like, say the Philippines or other countries where people might, you, you know, how Americans sometimes are, if, if they, you know, see somebody who might not speak, you know, great English, they get like a bad impression or, or, or something, right. but do you see that as much of a problem or written English, the, the quality of written English by the VAs are pretty strong usually? Is that accurate? Would you say? Yeah. I mean, I can, again, I can only speak for the free up platform. If, if they don't speak English at a high level, they don't get a foot into our interview process. So it's usually not an option or not, not really a, a big deal. I mean, we've got lots of clients who will hire someone in the Philippines to do voice support. I use them for email support and they'll actually do calls with clients that, that are scheduled. They don't answer the phones, but they'll, you can book a call with them. So for me, the, yes, there is it a hundred percent perfect Probably not, but the, the pro and con, the pro being a cheaper price point and sometimes a lot more dedicated people, um, it, it outweighs it. And it, it also depends on the person. You can get someone who's a 9.9 out of 10, you can get someone who's a 7.8. So um, I, I know that you can hire non-US people to do stuff in the English language at a very high level because I see it happen every single month. Would customer service be kind of like the number, like the first thing or the number one thing that people usually start with when they're talking about outsourcing labor? <laughs> Maybe it's kind of my, um, the, the funny question I get asked, like, what, what should I hire first? And the way that I like to approach it is there's three different levels of people. You got the basic level, the, the followers, they might have years of experience, but they're there to follow your systems, your process. The way that you do customer service is probably different than the way that I do. 
So customer service, data entry, maybe your sourcing process, things that you actually have a system and process for fall under the basics. So if you're someone that's stuck in the day-to-day operations and you're trying to get hours in your day back, that's where you start, the, the lower basic level freelancer. The mid-level people are the, the specialists, the doers, the graph designers, they write Amazon listings, they do bookkeeping. You're not teaching someone how to be a graphic designer, but they're not really consulting with you either. They're doers. And the average Amazon seller isn't a good graphic designer, or, or maybe they're really good at sourcing, but they're not good at PPC or writing listings. So figure out whatever your core competency is. And, and if you're not good at a bunch of projects that with Amazon, you have to do all the time, you, your first hire should really be those specialists to do them at a high level. And then third is those experts, the high level freelancers, consultants, agencies that have their own system, their own process that can execute it at a high level. Maybe it's Amazon PPC and, and you're a reasonably smart person and you could spend the next three to six months becoming an Amazon PPC expert. But is that really the best use of your time? You have everything on your business under control and you're crushing it. But besides PPC, maybe you should, your first hire should be that expert to take it off your plate and just execute it at a high level. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I like that. So then what, like just for an apples to apples comparison, let's say we were going to hire a general employee over here. He or she would be in charge of customer service, you know, answering emails, you know, maybe just checking up on listings, doing some research here or there. And if you were to hire somebody full-time at the very bottom, it would probably be like, I don't know, 12 to $15 an hour. So for that level of employee, for the same kind of quality of work that you would get from a 12 to $15 an hour employee here in the States, what would that cost? Say, let's just use Philippines. I don't know if you knew this. I'm actually half Filipino myself, but uh, let's use the uh, Philippines as an example. For the same level of quality of worker, what would we be paying full-time per hour? I would say the market rate is probably in that five to $10 an hour range. Are, are there people cheaper? Of course. Are there people more expensive? Yes. Um, the other thing to remember in, in that scenario is, okay, you've hired a, a U.S. employee for, let's say, 15 bucks an hour. Decent pay, depending on, on where you live. But how long is that person going to really work for $15 an hour? Are they going to work for the next 20 years at $15 an hour? Probably not. And with customer service, it takes a lot of onboarding. It takes a lot of training to get them to where they want to be. So all of a sudden you've got someone that's in a low price point that you've invested a lot into. And the situation that comes up all the time is, okay, I can't live off $15 an hour. Actually, I need 18. Actually, I need 20. Actually, eventually I need 25. And at some point, are you really going to spend $25 an hour on a customer service person? And, and some businesses can and do, and, and that's great. But for a lot of e-commerce entrepreneurs, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You want to take that money and invest it elsewhere. So that's why with customer service in particular, I always recommend at least trying someone in the Philippines. You can always say, no, no, that's not for me. I'm going to go pay more and go U.S., but the cost benefit is so so much of a difference in that particular situation. It makes sense to at least try it out. Okay. So for a lot of people who are just starting, let's say they're newer sellers, they can't afford mm-hmm. even somebody in the Philippines to hire full time. But I assume that there's like project-based work or part-time work as well, right? 
Yeah. I mean, we have freelancers from five to a hundred dollars an hour. We're 40% Philippines, 40% us, 20% scattered. So it's not just the five to $10 an hour freelancers. We've got the, the mid-level and the experts too. And a lot of the mid-level are experts. It could be a fixed price. You could pay them per graphic designer or per Amazon listing. Or, I mean, we have clients who will hire a top PPC agency for a few thousand a month or more or less, depending on the size of their account. So those options are definitely there. The way that we do it is we start, we introduce at an hourly rate that the freelancer sets. And then from there, if you want to negotiate that rate or agree to fixed price, that's really between you and the freelancer. Okay. What is something interesting that like no, uh, average person would not think of hiring a freelancer for that, that you've seen either through your platform or through others. Like I think the, you know, the standard that everybody thinks about is customer service, maybe graphic design, maybe listing, but is there anything really unique where you're like, what they hired this person for this? Well, that's interesting. Do you know uh, Will Mitchell from startup bros? Uh, I've never talked to him, but I know who he is. Yes. He's a good guy. He's a client of ours. He once hired a virtual assistant to, and the only reason I normally wouldn't say clients names, but I know he's chill with it. Um, he hired a freelancer to run his fantasy football team one year. So I thought <laughs> was kind of fun. How did that team do? I don't think they finished in first, but they weren't in last. So All right. you know what? That, that's, that, that's even better. I, I, I was wondering what you would come up with for this, but that's, I might have to hit <laughs> you up because I'm a big fantasy uh, football person. So I might need to, uh, <laughs> I might need to hire somebody for that. <laughs> that is great. That is great. All right. What else do people need to know that, you know, before they jump in, they're like, they might be listening to this and be like, Ooh, this sounds great. You know, I'm going to save some money, but what are some things that people should think about before diving into hiring a freelancer? One of the things that I do, and I do this every quarter with my business partner is we look at how much we're making. Well, what is, what is a profit at the end of the day? And then what kind of growth strategy do we want? Do we want to get aggressive? And, and usually aggressive means you'll invest 30 to 50% of that back into hiring people, whether it's internal employees or, or freelancers, virtual assistant, are you more conservative? Maybe you're in that 10 to 25%. There's no necessarily, there's not necessarily a right or wrong. It depends on your business philosophy, but really figuring out what your budget is. That's the important part. If you say, Hey, I want to invest 20% of what I made back in, then you can look and say, you know what? Okay. I can afford someone to run my PPC or to do the Amazon listing, or, or maybe I can only afford a 20 hour a week VA in the Philippines. The last, the last thing you want to do is hire someone, have a bad month, which we all know in Amazon that can just randomly happen. And all that time and energy you put into onboarding and getting someone set up, you have to let them go. So make sure that before you add someone on that you can actually afford it and that your budget makes sense and you've really thought it out. Or if you can't afford it, focus a little bit more on project based one time stuff. Hey, let's have someone optimize my best listing or, or do this graphic design project stuff that you know is going to be that one time set price that you can afford it. So you don't overcommit yourself down the line. Okay. Now what, what else should people be aware of that they could, that could help them protect themselves? I mean, no matter where we get employees, whether it's in our own hometown or a virtual assistant, there's, there's bad apples out there, of course. So what can, entrepreneurs do in order to best protect themselves? You know, there's no foolproof way. I would assume just thinking off the top of my head, like one thing is, Hey, don't give them the admin access to your, to your seller central account, you know, make a sub account. Or if you're using helium 10 and you, and you don't want them to have full access to all of your, your profits data, use a sub account on, on helium 10. But other than just that, which is kind of like a no brainer, are there any other things that somebody can do to help minimize risks? 
Yeah. And you should never give someone the main access to your, to your seller account. This is kind of my stance on risk. There, there's always going to be risk. Hiring is no different than any other part of, of the riskiness of being an entrepreneur. And even if you hire your best friend to sit right next to you, there's always a chance that they do something stupid or jeopardize your business in some way. I kind of mentioned my, what I said before about how they care a lot more about they're providing for their family and they do about hurting your business. But yes, there, there are things that you can do to protect yourself. You can use LastPass, for example. So you can take away their passwords quickly if you let them go. You can do sub permissions in Amazon or even if it's a bookkeeper for credit card statements or PayPal, you, you can do it there now too. Yes, you can have them sign an NDA, but are you really going to chase someone across the U.S. or across the Philippines over an NDA? Maybe, probably not. The real way to protect yourself that I found is to actually build relationships with the people that you're working with. There's really no substitute for that. I've had people that I fired. I've had people that have quit on me but they didn't want to hurt me. I didn't want to hurt them because we just built a relationship. It's a lot of times it's the clients that don't build that relationship and, and, it, and stuff, something goes haywire. That's when they run into issues. If you can build a relationship and treat people respectfully, nine times out of 10 or way more, you're not going to run into those issues. Awesome. Awesome. Now you said a, a lot of your workforce and those who you hook up with people are from the Philippines. Have you been to the Philippines yourself? I did. So when we first started free up, we, we set a goal, Hey, if we bill over 5,000 hours in one week, and now we're over 14,000. So this was a few years ago. We said, Hey, we'll go to the Philippines and, and we hit it. And we flew, Connor and I flew out there and we, we put on an event and we said, Hey, there's going to be food. There's going to be drinks, no obligation. You don't have to come. Um, if you want to, this is where it is. And it, it was pretty cool. We had over a hundred people show up free up. was, it was a lot smaller back then. Um, but yeah, it was great. We got to meet a lot of the people on our platform. We got to take pictures and, and give out gifts and eat a lot of really awesome, interesting food. What's your uh, favorite sure Filipino food? Oh man. I'm not going to remember the L- name. Lumpia? You know what that is? The egg rolls, the long skinny egg rolls. I don't, you know, the uh, blue, is that what the Oh my egg- goodness. Don't talk to me about that. I don't want to, <laughs> that's next level. That's next level right there. <laughs> I know. So my girlfriend's actually Vietnamese. Everyone thinks that she's Filipino because I own free up, but they, they actually have that not often, but, but once in a while. So I actually experienced that before. So, so for I, everybody out there who does not know what Balut is, why don't you explain it? Because that's, uh, I'm going to cover my ears right now because it, it, it turns my insides even listening to it, but go ahead. I believe it's chicken. It might be another bird, but it's chicken, right? Yes. But what, at what stage? It's yeah. It's a, it's, you normally would eat an egg or a, a chicken. This is the in-between. It's the egg that the chicken is half alive inside the egg. And oh. It's a delicacy. Oh yeah. Uh, it's a Della. I, I tell people, yeah, I'm Filipino, but I'm not that Filipino. Uh, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't, eat, I don't eat that stuff. Speaking of food though, something I like to ask my guests, you know, you being in Orlando. Now me, I actually, I am in Orlando all the time. I already have a couple places I like to go out there that I don't have here in California. For example, Bahama Breeze, they got some really great drinks there. And then I also go to Miller's Ale House and I have their uh, zingers and a couple yep. of cool things. We don't have that out here in California, but for the next time I go out to Orlando, where are you going to take me? What is a place that only Orlando has, or that's kind of like something you would see on diners, diving and drives, uh, like a great local place where are we going to go? 
If you like Thai food, there's this place, Royal Thai, which is five minutes from my house. It is the best Thai food I've ever had in my life. It's a little hole in the wall. They've won a ton of awards. They've had a bunch of famous people there and it blows, it'll blow your mind. If you like Thai food. I do. I do. All right. We're, we're going to go there next time. Now you have been mentioning about a free up your company. So can you tell us a little bit how people can find more information about free up or contact you with more information on hiring VAs? Yeah. So I mentioned I ran an e-commerce business and I hired a lot of freelancers. I used Upwork, Fiverr, and I just wanted a better, faster way. And when I couldn't find it, I built it myself. We get thousands of applicants every week, virtual assistants, freelancers, agencies to get on our platform. We vet them for skill, attitude, communication, take the top 1%, let them in, make them available to you quickly whenever you need them with 24 seven support, and a no turnover guarantee. If they quit for any reason, we cover replacement costs and get you a new person right away. So that's what we're all about. Mention this podcast, get a $50 credit to try us out. It's freeup.com with three E's. My calendar is also right at the top of the website. Um, if you wanna book a time with me and it's free to sign up, there's no monthly fee, no minimums, no obligation. And you can also check out the free up blog or the free up YouTube channel. We post a lot of content to help you hire and scale your e-commerce business. Awesome. Awesome. Nate, thank you for your time. Again, that's uh, freeup.com with three E. So it's kind of like freeup.com, I guess you could say, right? <laughs> yes. All right, cool. All right. Well, Nathan, we're going to that Thai food as soon as I go to Orlando, which actually might be in about three or four weeks. So I'll, I'll hit you up once we go there. And thank you very much for your time and amazing insight that you've given us about hiring freelancers.